Welcome back, everybody. Happy summertime to you. It's time for picnics in the park. It's time for fishing, going down to the beach, going out to the river, camping, mountain climbing, driving across the country, and all those other wonderful, crazy things we do during the summertime that uh, make this country great. It's also time, as a matter of fact, to pack up your queue and all of your belongings and head to Las Vegas for the BCAPL or the BCA Pool League Nationals that just kicked off this week. They've got events going, every type of event going under the sun. It's a pool extravaganza. Of course, if you haven't already signed up to play in one of the events, you can always go out and spectate. There's going to be some really hot matches going on and uh, people from all around the country and even around the world that are going to be there to meet and greet. It's going to be a lot of great pool going on. Very significant event. Um, Of course, there's also also going to be the the streaming of uh, some of the hottest matches going on. So uh, if you look into that, definitely going to be a lot of pool playing going on. It's going to be a ball. What else is going on in the news? Well, you got, uh, you know, Darren Appleton goes over to Romania and says, hey, what do you know? I think I'll uh, create a, a new event. So he does. Invites a bunch of great players, has a ball, and he wins the thing. So uh, that's pretty funny, uh, you know, to create a tournament and just win it. So <laughs> hats off to Appleton, I guess. He's a, he's a, a strong player, that guy. So uh, got to give him the respect. Uh, what else is in the headlines? You know, uh, Orcoyo went out to the West Coast and uh, knocked a few heads together at the uh, uh, Tin Ball Open at Hard Times. Uh, I understand that that was quite the field he was contending there with. Uh, I wish I'd have been able to make it to that one for sure. And uh, have you heard about Jeanette Lee? She's going to play... In the 14-1 World Open, or the World Tournament, excuse me, the 14-1 World Tournament, and appears to be the only female entry. That's going to be exciting to see how that turns out. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just don't even know what to say to that. That's crazy. Uh, it sounds like a blast, though, that's for sure. <laughs> and speaking of Jeanette Lee, she's also going to go over to the uh, to the uh, Junior Championships for the APA. The APA just cranked up their first version of the junior championships which is great by the way the the more opportunities for the juniors to get involved uh, the better uh, but uh, of course Jeanette's going to go over there obviously and uh, step up and say a few things and uh, fire up the kids so that's going to be an awesome event too a lot of stuff going on you know um, it's a good time to be a pool player that's for sure and uh, you would think it's in the middle of winter or something with all this pool going on it's great so uh, anyway moving on we're going to get to hear from uh, a little bit later uh we're going to hear from who billy billing do you know that name she's a legend in women's pool uh basically kick-started the wpba uh she was the first president um Scott, something like 50 titles under her belt, a tremendous player and, and, and a legend in her own right. Uh, she's going to be on here in a minute with uh, Allison, and uh, we'll also get to hear from Nick Varner. 
He's got some stuff to talk about with uh, Mark and them. So stick around, and we'll be right back after this jazzy snip and a one-minute pool tip. I'm Scott Lee. I'm Randy G. And welcome to the One Minute Pool Instructor. And this week we're going to discuss choke syndromes. You know, all of us as pool players have experienced at one time or another choking on a shot. It may have been the game ball, may have been uh, a not so important ball, might have been the first shot we started out with. But choking is a phenomena that everybody who's played any amount of pool can experience. Randy, give us a definition of what choking is. Choking would be doing something out of your ordinary. Now, I'm going to give you an example more so. Missing a bank shot or missing a three-rail kick shot is not choking. But missing a ball sitting right in front of the pocket or misplaying shape on a shot that you would normally get shape on, that's choking. So, or, or going out of your routine. Yeah, getting cause you to well, choke. Well, that's a cause of choking. True. There, there are two major causes of choking. In, 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 uh, the, the very first one is in school, Scott, we teach three pre shot routines. Yes. Anytime you break any one of those three routines, you're apt to choke. On an easy shot, or the first shot, or a hard shot. Choking is very simply, when you get out of your routine, you're going to do something different. Randy, in your experience, do people choke more frequently on hard shots than easy shots? <laughs> I don't know. You, we'd have to ask each one of those people. <laughs> How about myself? Yeah. I, I get a little lazy, and I bet I miss more easy shots. I think so. Than I ever, because I focus hard on a tough shot. Yeah. And, and remember, in my game, there are no tough shots. They're all I, shots. They're exactly. all shots. But I get a little bit lazy on my ball address on a, on a can of corn shot. <laughs> and, and sure, I'll miss it because I got lazy. Well, that's a break in my ritual. Right. That was not being nervous. That's not being apprehensive. An another, uh, another way that that happens is going out of your your uh, routine and your rhythm ready to hit the ball where you hurry your backswing. Oh yeah. Or you hurry your transition to the forward stroke. Or, or if you normally take two warm-ups, you take four warm-ups. That automatically clicks the brain into a red, red light. Or you tighten up on the cue stick when you didn't mean to. Yeah. Now there is another way of choking, Scott, and it's, it's pretty human being. It, it's called adrenaline. Oh yeah. And adrenaline is produced by the body during times of fear, stress, or excitement. And in pool, I don't know if there's fear. There might be a little stress, <laughs> but there's a lot of excitement. Getting down to the last game ball, making the ball to win for your teammate, or pocketing this nine ball and winning, let's say, a couple hundred, a couple thousand dollars. Sure. Uh, that's excitement. And, and all these things, uh, adrenaline could cause the muscles to tense, our field of vision to widen, and then our hearing becomes more acute. 
in all of those, we don't want any of those to happen to Absolutely. us. Absolutely. I think so, all of us have felt like your stroking arm feels like it's made of lead. Lead. And you can't move the cue. So, what is adrenaline? And what does breathing have to do with adrenaline? Oh, breathing is huge. I mean, the, the, the theory is that we should breathe out as we're about to deliver the cue through the ball. And, and completely uh, not have any breath in our lungs as we strike the cue ball. Not holding your breath, but a no, nice... No, that causes tension right, again. A nice relaxed breath in uh, on the backswing and breathe out as you stroke forward through the ball. And I find if there's a lot of adrenaline in my game, I'll go back away from the shot and go back to maybe my chair and wipe my hands. But really what I'm doing is I'm taking deep breaths with long exhales because adrenaline is a chemical. So the way we get the chemical out of our system, out of our bloodstream, is to introduce fresh, fresh oxygen. There you go. And, and so you got it right. That long exhale is what gets rid of or introduces uh, the oxygen into our system and gets the carbon dioxide out of our system. Which helps us to get past choking. Yeah. And, and now there's several examples of choking. But there are two main reasons are, once again, breaking your ritual or getting either stimulated by stress or excitement and getting that spike of adrenaline in our body. Just mm -hmm. you have to learn how to take care of both and breathing is a pretty good way of doing it. Standing back and, and taking a couple breaths, exhale and go. Let her go. So, All right, Randy I'm, G. I'm Scott Lee. That's been this week's One Minute Pool Instructor. Uh, join us next time when we'll be discussing how many master instructors have come out of Randy G's pool school? Ooh, stay tuned. Welcome to this week's edition of Pool on the Grind here on AmericanBilliardRadio.com. I'm your host, Allison Fisher of NYCGrind.com, and I'm really pleased to have joining me this week, Billy Billing, one of the founders of the WPBA. Thanks very much for joining me, Billy. Thank you for inviting me, Allison. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Well, uh, we're here at Amsterdam Billiards in New York right now, and I'd like to kind of uh, be able to share bit of your story and how pool has uh, been involved in your life uh, through over the years. And I'd like to start with maybe an introduction of how you first got interested in pool. Well, my transition was from uh, marbles to pinball to pool. And uh, I was going to college and I walked into the uh, student lounge one day where I used to play pinball and they had brought in two bar-sized pool tables, and I just was fascinated, you know, that you take a stick and you hit a ball into another ball and it goes into a pocket. It was like, it just, it really, it just fascinated me. I had to, I had to know how to play. So would you say that you first started just by watching and then, you know, learning, learning that way? Correct, correct. I, um, I started watching 
what everybody else did, especially how to hold a stick, because I didn't know how to hold the stick. And uh, and then I sort of, you know, struggled through my first open hand bridge, and I had good hand-eye coordination right from the get, so I could start pocketing right away. When would you say you first started to get more interested in taking pool seriously? Like, did you play in any certain tournaments, or were there players who you who you saw that you were influenced by? Well, interestingly enough, when I was uh, starting out in pocket billiards, there were really very few tournaments. There was no leagues. There was very few house tournaments. And um, if you did, uh, when I found out about that there was actually professional pool and I found out about a qualifier that was in Elizabeth, New Jersey. It was Mike Ash's room, IQ Billiards. And I went over there and um, the second time, second qualifier I won, or actually the third qualifier I went to, I won. And I learned very quickly that if you win a qualifier, the only other thing you could play in was the U.S. Open. That was it. Two tournaments a year, you were done. Wow. Yeah, it was really um, a, a dry spell, you know. Uh, it was very rare that we could play in an organized competition. And what my experience was that uh, if I wanted to play, I had to play for... I was basically a 10 in the time player. You know, you play for $10 in the time, and that's how I got my... Uh, you know, my competition, that's how I learned how to play. What was the atmosphere for you like being a female and being around pool? When I first started walking into a pool room, it was very tough. Um, I had mentioned before that I had an experience with uh, in my um, student lounge at my college that I actually got physically accosted <laughs> the first time I actually beat somebody, one of the better players in the, uh, in the, in the student lounge, and uh, after that I started going to pool rooms, and uh, it, it, was, it was not really uh, conducive to women players. If you were somebody's girlfriend or wife or something like that, you know, it was, it was welcome as long as you were sitting there quietly and watching, it was okay, right. but if you wanted to get on the table and compete then uh, you were subject to any kind of uh, you know, verbal abuse, basically. Right. And women in sports in general had very little, uh, very little range of, of um, range of freedom, I think, for for quite a while. And it takes it takes a lot of guts, I know, from from my perspective. Even when I started playing. You got a lot of really weird looks from from people, um, even in your recent years. So it's definitely something that takes courage for sure. Yeah, well, I started playing in what 1974, so it was it was rough out there. So um, one of the reasons why I became interested in becoming an, an organizer of women's pocket billiards was because of uh, I wanted to avoid the gambling scene because that was really what I was running up against and I said there's got to be an alternative for, uh, to what I was seeing 
and uh, I, I started to meet women that felt the same way. And uh, I had heard about the Women's Professional Billiard Association because I was going to the U.S. Open, which was in Chicago at that time. The Billiard Congress of America was hosting it. And I met uh, Madeline Whitlow and Palmer Bird and Larry Miller, who had started out the WPBA. They had two events, and then the, that was it. So it was like, I kept trying to get a hold of them and say, what, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And I finally got a hold of Palmer, and she said, you know, uh, nobody's interested, this is too tough, you know, I can't get funding, and things of that sort. So I said, well, give it to me, you know? And uh, so I don't know if that was good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> But um, one of the things I found that encouraged room owners to have women's tournaments was that they had very small fields, like six, they would have a a qualifier for the U.S. Open and six women would show up. Mm -hmm. And so room owners were like, I I really don't want to have a women's tournament with such a low field. I want, you know, more excitement. So I said, well, how about if I guarantee you that I can bring in 16 players? So you guarantee me that? Um, yes. And the other thing I will do for you is I'll do a media blitz in your area. And I'll bring newspapers and magazines and possibly some television or radio into your room. And uh, I was I had a very organized plan. I would The room owner would agree to have the event. And about a month before the event, I would start sending out human interest stories. An 11-year-old girl is going to play in this tournament. Uh, a local housewife who uh, runs your Girl Scout cookie drive is going to be playing, um, and things of that sort. And sometimes there would be a, a, a good woman player in that area, and I would also feature her. And then two weeks before the tournament, I would send out different human interest stories. And I, of course, there would be all the, the stories would be accompanied by photographs of these players, and um, and then finally, uh, if there was any championships, and also the room itself, I would write a story about the room itself, and eventually, uh, we would get some kind of coverage, and the room owner, like. Cy Extet had a famous room in, in uh, Connecticut, New London, Connecticut, uh, the Golden gold, gold Crown. And he said to me, Billy, TV is coming. And I'm like, well, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> and he said, I've been having tournaments for 20 years. I've never had television come into my room. And I was like, well, that's what good, good publicity will do for you. So we had television coverage and... Uh, and after that, more and more room owners wanted to have uh, tournaments for the WPBA. We started growing. I think that it's it's also a positive thing. I, I'd imagine it was a positive thing for the rooms because as opposed to having um, the men's uh, tournaments and giving press to them, you know, the, the women, I think, have more of a... Um, Sportsmanship more li- more likely and have the the air of we're you know we're camaraderie and I think that's a positive thing that they could highlight. There was definitely a difference between uh, men and women tournaments, uh, and also it helped that 
we established, the WPBA established rules and regulations, address code, and things of that sort. And it, it was an easy dress code. It was like slacks and a open collared shirt or blouse and something like that. It wasn't like real real strict. So it was easy, it was affordable and most of the women wanted to wear that. It wasn't like it was, you know, off the beaten track for what they felt comfortable wearing and um, and they definitely had a better attitude towards competition than uh, than, than men players. So uh, how were how were the tournaments received by the men who were already competing there? <laughs> Good question. So, um, well, you know, at first, the men thought that having a women's division or you know next to their event uh, was well. Of course, when we had qualifiers, we we were by ourselves. Right. But when we started to venture out, um, at first there was a, an organization called the uh, Professional Pool Players Association. Now, the PPPA was a group of men players that were um, boycotting the Billion Congress of America and trying to establish higher prize funds for men. And uh, and I, I was I was all for that, you know. I I, I love the BCA. I you know that was my experience, and I think that uh, they're a very professional organization, and uh, I love the BCA. But I also could see the PPPA what they were trying to do, and I loved that too. So I asked them if we could have a women's division in their event, and they were in Atlantic City in 1977. And we did go in with them. But um, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, we were having our, we agreed that I would raise the prize fund for the women's event. We raised $3,000, which was, which matched what the BCA was doing. So you can imagine, I mean, I'm one woman and I could match the prize fund of what the Billiard Congress of America, the most powerful organization in pocket billiards, was doing, you know, for women players. So uh, you can see the BCA could have done a lot more. <laughs> so anyway, so we're in the players meeting and uh, the representative for the PPPA comes in and he makes an announcement that the men fell short of what they wanted for their prize fund, so they were going to take two of the $3,000 that I had raised and put it into their prize fund. So, <laughs> so it was funny, because I, I stood up and I said, um, no, that's not going to happen, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, right, girls? <laughs> and I turned around and it was like, <laughs> absolutely nobody backs me. Oh, no. <laughs> so, uh, I was like, Oh, well, hey, look, you know, it's in my, my bank account, so you're not getting it. That was it. So, I mean, that was, that was the good news. We, we ended up keeping our prize fund. However, the PPPA then barred us from playing in their championship. So, um, in, in some ways, that wasn't so bad because it really put the pressure on me to create the 
women's professional, uh, the WPBA National Championship, mm -hmm. which is now 35 years old. So uh, that was the impetus for having our own uh, event that stood without a men's division. And, uh, you know, I was almost forced <laughs> into that. But I'm glad I did, you know. And uh, the next thing I did was I started a letter-writing campaign to all of the manufacturers, room owners, and fans, and anybody who supported men's pool, and said, we need to have a women's division in the PPPA World Tournament, and uh, we need your support. And so they put a tremendous amount of pressure on that group of men. And it turned out that in 1980, they reestablished the women's division. And players like Eva uh, Svensson, now Eva Lawrence, actually came from Europe to play in that event. And it would be a real uh, interesting if she had not come uh, when she was 17 years old to New York City to play in the world tournament, what would have happened to her career. So um, it was a groundbreaker for a lot of women uh, to come and play. Lori John Oganowski, who became Lori John Jones, and uh, Vicki Paskey, mm -hmm. uh, Belinda Bearden, and uh, you know, I can, uh, Lori Champeau. We all got. Uh, a tremendous uh, start, kickstart to our careers by playing in the Roosevelt Hotel. What was the feeling like to see that all come to fruition that in that event? It was amazing, but um, Ernie Costa, who was the vice president of the PPPA, called me up and he said, I've got some news. Do you want the good news or the bad news? I said, well, give me the good news first. I said, okay, they're going to have a women's division. I said, yes. What's the bad news? Well, they decided that it's not going to be a qualifying event. It's going to be an invitational, and they're not inviting you. And I was like, what? <laughs> I said, well, you're a troublemaker. <laughs> so... I was really devastated, actually, because um, the only thing I got out of being president of the WPBA was that I could play. That was really what I, that my reward was I could play in more organized events. So that was a, a real um, downer. And then um, Mike Ash, Syekstat, Ernie, and a few other men players came to my rescue and uh, really like pushed to get me uh, invited to the PPPA World Tournament. And uh, I'm glad I went because I finished second to Jean Belugas. So, oh, wow. So that was good. <laughs> That's tremendous. Now, were you friends with Jean? We're colleagues. Colleagues. Okay. And I know that she also... Um, is from Brooklyn. Yes. And I played in Jean's room for many years, and she avoided playing me. <laughs> she did not want to play me. Right. Okay. Socially. All right. Now, um, you're, you're now involved in pool, from what I understand, as the house pro at Brownstone Billiards. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? 
Yes, I'd, I'd like to say that Brownstone Billiards is a family recreation room. It's not a player's room, but it's really fantastic for the community in Brooklyn and Park Slope. Um, they do a lot of parties. They have uh, a, a nice little sports bar there. Um, they have a lot of kids that play in that room. Uh, I've seen many, many bar mitzvahs going through there. And uh, they have... Um, uh, there's... Uh, I guess organizations in the neighborhood that have uh, kids camps, boys camps, girls camps, and they all come through Brownstone on rainy days, which is great to see. And uh, I've been, I also, for years I had a group class at uh, Brownstone, which drew anywhere from maybe 10 to 35 people who came to this group class. I called it the Teach and the teach and trick shot show because I quickly learned that when people were sitting and listening to a lesson in pocket billiards that their minds would wander Mm -hmm. so I would do um, a little bit of a lesson and then I would say and here's a trick shot that relates to that lesson and I would do a trick shot Mm -hmm. and everybody woke up and uh, and so that's what I did I combined trick shots with how to it kind of information and it's funny like uh, just the other day uh, a young man came up to me and he was like maybe he was like six foot five I'm looking up to him and he goes oh Billy do you remember me and I was like no he goes yes he says my mom and I took your class when I was 12 years old and I still play pool today and I'm like you know uh, he looked like he was a grown man, so he's about mm-hmm. probably about 24 or something like that. So it was a thrill that the class influenced him to stay with the sport, you know. So, um, and that's how I think about Brownstone. That it's uh, a family place. It's uh, it's a fun place, and uh, I have uh, a great clientele there. Uh, I've taught over 5,000 people at Brownstone Billiards, so um, I'm very grateful to the room for all it's done for me. What do you think is the, uh, are some of the benefits for kids to get involved with pool? Because I know there are programs growing, and I know the BEF does a, does a lot of things for for kids, but what, in your opinion, are some of the, the good things for, for kids in pool? Well, um, you know, uh, the game itself, because... Uh, uh, it's a tough question. So, um, because kids, well, it depends on the age. I'm going to go by that. It depends on the age of the child because pool requires some sitting around and being, um, you know, in the chair yeah, and, and being patient. <laughs> um, but it does build hand eye coordination. It's fascinating. Uh, one of the things that I taught in all my classes was a little bit of the geometry and the physics of pool. So I know that kids are interested in that. And, uh, and the trick shots, of course, uh, the physics of pool in terms of how the balls interact with one another is another fascinating aspect of the sport. And, uh, you know, when, it, when you're young, you want to run around. So, uh, but... You know, it's still a great sport for kids, uh, but more so for adults. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna say, you yeah. know, when you're a teenager, pocket billiards is going to be more apropos. 
Sure, sure, and it and it can help. I think uh, maybe teaching kids or young people that ability to be like to pay, be patient and focus and bring together the uh, the fine motor skills with the, the hand-eye coordination because it's such a you have to really develop those those skills over a long time so it's not it's not easy for anyone adults or or otherwise so I, uh, I like to see that there are, are a number of young people that try to get involved right. and I, you know I also think that the aspect of offense and defense mm-hmm. uh, in pocket billiards and uh, strategy to strategize in the game, not only through um, playing safeties, but also through pattern play. It can really get your mind um, together. I can understand the fascination of video games because that's also pattern play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so uh, that's another aspect of the game that I think is, is, is useful for someone who's younger. Well, I really th- thank you for coming on the show. And you want to you want to comment on anything else? Is there anything else you'd like to speak about pertaining to what you're doing with pool now? Are you are you currently playing? I'm I'm playing in the league at Amsterdam Billiards, which I love. I think it's a great league. John does a great job of organizing, and it's just a, a well organized and and. Uh, a lot of good sportsmanship is exhibited throughout the league, so I, I, I love playing here. And uh, the other thing that I would like is more on a personal note was that um, I've been a contender for the WPBA Hall of Fame for 35 years, and uh, I would really like my fans out there to uh, start writing the WPBA and saying it's about time that I. I become an, uh, entered into the WPBA Hall of Fame because um, I earned it as a player, as a promoter, as an organizer, as a builder of women's pocket billiards, and uh, I want to be there. Well, most definitely, I think that you've really been a trailblazer for our sport, and it was really um, an honor to be able to hear your story and to see where things have come um, from where they started because it's uh, it's not easy now and it, I'm sure it wasn't easy then but everyone's trying to tr- trying to do their part so uh, thank you for for um, leading you know leading the way thanks very much all right well thank you everybody for joining us it's been really great having Billy here on the show and I will be back with everybody next week this is pool on the grind here at AmericanBilliardRadio.com. Back to American Billiard Radio. This is Mark Kentrell. This, this is the Legends and Champions Report, brought to you by Neil's Garage Cabinets of Mesa, Arizona. And uh, this week, uh, I'm joined by a, a friend of mine, Hall of Famer, the Kentucky Colonel Nick Varner. How are you doing, sir? Uh, doing good, Mark. Um, you know, we've been doing interviews with Moscone Cup players. Uh, the potential eight that have been there, uh, who have kind of 
to be sorted into the actual team. Now, you, you've played on the Moscone Cup and you've captained the Moscone Cup a few times, right? Yeah, I've been captain seven times. Seven times captain, and I think you told me before, the seven times you've been captain, five times you've won. So that's a pretty good win record, I think. Yeah, I won five times. And would you play captain all the time, or were you playing captain? Oh, uh... Uh, three years I was playing captain, and uh, let's see, so four years I was just the captain. Okay. It's a pretty and tough job to uh, to play. I, I know one thing, it's uh, a pretty tough job to uh, be the, the playing captain. They really, it's really hard to uh, uh, play real good and, and be the captain. That's uh, almost too much. Right. Well, you know, I'm guessing you know that the selection process is working a little bit different this year. Um, Wilson's captain. What, what's your thoughts on what, what would you do if you were the captain at this point? Having the opportunity to handpick your own team and have a year to work with them. Well, that's certainly a luxury I never had uh uh, matchroom always basically picked the team and, and uh, sometime the top uh, three players some years the top three players came off the ranking list but uh, as time went along uh, and uh, the the ranking list uh, has been uh, tough to uh, it's been tough uh, the ranking list there hadn't really hardly been enough tournaments to pick them off the ranking list Right. Well, what what would you do though if you were in most position? Because he's 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 been debated, you know, among a lot of different people, and some are positive on the process and some are negative. Um, he's picked a young team uh, th- this year. Well, I say he picked a young team. Um, you know, John Schmidt's not really that young anymore, and um, John Sch- yeah, John Schmidt's not that young anymore. Neither is Corey. Um, but would you do anything particular, you think, if you were, had the opportunity? Do anything different or What would you do if, if you were the captain? What, what would you do if you had this opportunity to have the team handpicked and have a year to work with them? Well, it would be nice to be able to handpick the players. Uh, that's certainly a decision I never had to make before. So uh, I would certainly uh, look at the talent and try to pick the best players uh, that I thought uh, gave me the best chance to win. Do you um you you know Mark Wilson? Yes. What do you what do you think of his uh, ability to to pull this off? His ability to pull it off, or what yeah, yeah, his ability to uh, make this team what it needs to be. He certainly it, certainly got his hands full. That's for sure. Yeah. 
He, he, doesn't have, he doesn't have an easy job. No, certainly doesn't have an easy job. Um, I'm, I'm just... Yeah, as, as well, you've probably known him a, a lot longer than, than I have. Um, and everything, everybody I speak to seems to think he's uh, just the perfect guy for the job. Um, you know, he's got certain talents and areas of expertise, I guess, that uh, are going to work in his favor in this particular case. Um, he's obviously going a whole different route with the, with the team than never has, that has been done before. Really, um, what, what's your thoughts on having such a young team? Because that's one of the areas that people have had anything negative as an experience. What are your thoughts? Well, he's got a pretty good nucleus with uh, those uh, uh, three players, uh, Shane and uh, uh, Corey and... Uh, and John Smith, that's a that's a pretty good nucleus. Uh, I don't know what's going to end up. I know he picked eight. I don't know when he's going to pick the team itself. Uh, 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 and Oscar, uh, uh, he was uh, uh, the last team that I was captain of that we won. Oscar was on the team, and uh, so... Uh, that's four of them, and they just need one more. So I, I don't know who they're going to end up picking. I, I have to admit, when I heard the uh, list of players, I, uh, one thing that uh, hit me right right off the reel that got my attention was I was a little surprised that uh, Johnny Archer uh, wasn't on the team because uh, I know from the seven years that I was team captain, he was about the uh, most valuable player almost every time. And... Uh, I know we'd be a few cups short without uh, him being on the team. He won an awful lot of matches, and and he always got the uh, tough assignments with the the, the top of the uh, Europe's lineup every time. He he got handed uh, he handed he always got handed the the tough assignments. So I guess the biggest surprise to me was his name was missing. Yeah, well, I I, I guess Mark's. Uh, Mark Wilson's theory is try and bring just youth in, you know. And you're right. I mean, Johnny has a. I don't even. I don't really know what his win loss percentage is in the Moscone Cup. But as you said, he usually gets stuck playing the toughest player on the European team. So. You know, if it's if it's not that great of a win percentage, uh, it's probably that's probably the reason for it. Well, all I know is the seven years I was on the team, uh, uh, he was certainly. If there was a tie, he would have been playing the. Uh, he would have been playing if we never did. But if we'd ever tied on the hill, there would have been no question about which player got picked to play the final game. I know that much. Right. That that would have been the easiest decision of all to make. <laughs> team captain. Right. And now, did you win? And you you were you played in England before? Your goal. Yeah, yeah. We played uh, the years I played every year were your call. It, it, I think the first year it moved to the states was, I believe, two thousand three. 
Right. I, uh, I'm wondering. I played, there. I played four years, and they were all ER call. Yeah, and this year it's in a place called Blackpool. Uh, it's going to be different again. So we'll, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, I know you've got a, a lot of experience doing doing the job, but not had to, some of the same advantages doing the job uh, of a captain. Uh, I, I imagine that it'd be it'll be a different. Uh, It'd be a different ball of wax again if you had the option to do some of these things. But, um, you know, aside from the Moscone Cup, I did want to ask you, uh, somebody was asking me the other day um, about your Hughes, uh, your business with the Hughes cases, and asking how you how you got into that, how you started. And I said, well, I think to begin with, you weren't you working with uh, Mike Siegel? Well, uh, no, not in the beginning. No, I started out in, uh, in, uh, uh, I had, uh, uh, represented Falcon Q several years on the Pro Tour, and, uh, and anyway, uh, uh, I was, uh, I didn't have an endorsement contract, so, I was trying to think of something I could do that, uh, um, and still play pool because I was still playing really good pool at the time. And it was the end. I I started working on the Q project about uh, oh, the end of '97, and uh, it it took me about a year, year and a half to get everything put in place. And then uh, the one of the toughest decisions was. Uh, what price point cues to do? I, I didn't want to do the cues like uh, Walmart and Kmart were selling, because uh, uh, Miserac pretty well had that part covered anyway. And, uh, and then, but I wanted to do a, a cue that most people could afford, the league players. So, so I, 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 uh, I kind of. Uh, and still today, probably seventy-five percent of my cues are, are uh, retail, uh, uh, say sixty dollars to one one fifty. So, so that's the bulk of my business. So uh, the cues are affordable. And then, uh, since I'd represented uh, Falcon a long time and stuff, I knew that their cues played really good. And I happened to be over and. Asia and uh, the owner of Falcon. He asked me out for dinner and uh, to to catch up. And uh, he said, "What are you doing?" I said, "Well, I'm going to start. Uh, I'm going to start making uh, cues." And uh, he said, "Well, can I help you with it?" And uh, so uh, I had been uh, test marketing another brand of cues and uh, to see how big the market was. And anyway. He he made me up some uh, uh, samples and stuff, and the uh, quality was so much better than w- what I had been selling. And and uh, I thought, even though the cues were inexpensive, I thought that's no reason why they can't play good. Because number one, the tips are the most important part of the whole cue. And uh, and uh, then I wanted to have a, a real good feral, and then uh, and then and then uh, even though. 
most people they pay for the design and how much works in in the uh, butt of the queue. Uh, the performance is all in the tip ferrule and the shaft. So, so uh, I thought for just a little bit more money, you know, even even though uh, the players uh, weren't uh, having to spend a lot of money for a queue, that didn't mean they had to uh, 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 sacrifice performance and. Uh, and so, uh, and I'd worked with Peter Vitale, and Peter Vitale, uh, they had hired this sales group that uh, came from the furniture industry, and they still, some of them sold furniture and stuff, and and I had been doing exhibitions for Peter Vitale at the furniture markets, and uh, and I'd ran into these guys a lot, and they had... Uh, they had the Vitaly pool tables, and they had the uh, bar stools. Uh, uh, fact that one time they were the sales rep group that handled a lot of the the sales for the Darafiv uh, furniture group, and uh, uh, and so with the Vitaly tables, they had two brands, and they were always telling me, "Man, you need to do cues. You need to do cues." So we they said we can sell them. So uh, Finally, I decided. Well, I'll try this, and uh, and so uh, and then uh, Peter Vitale helped me a lot. They they uh, uh, let me put the, my cues in the beginning in their booth, and uh, and so I, I was able to uh, uh, talk to a lot of the uh, Vitale dealers. So they gave me a real jump start, and then. Uh, and then Falcon making the prototypes, that was uh, really strong because their quality is uh, second to none. So you went from, now were you designing any of these cues? Yeah, I designed them all. I designed them all and then, uh, and then, uh, and, uh, yeah, I ended up designing every one of them. Well, it's uh, seems like it's worked out for us. I know it's a, a lot of work, but you know, a lot of players, top level pool players, once you get to a certain age, and you know, sometimes they just lose that edge and they just can't perform like they used to. Um, you know, they kind of left, going, "Well, what the heck am I going to do now?" Kind of thing uh, to, to make money. So, obviously, you made a, a good choice. Uh, with uh, with the uh, cue business, because yeah, I mean you do a good you you do quite a lot of business, don't you? Well, I I uh, have built a business over the last fifteen years where where I do a decent amount of business. I mean, I have lots of uh, competition, but uh, it's worked out where I can make a living uh, right. without without playing in tournaments and. Uh, uh, What's funny is when I first started the business, I, uh, uh, I, I played some of my best pool. I, I actually started selling the cues, uh, uh, at the BCA show in 1999. That was my first, uh, time selling the cues. And <laughs> like five or six months later, I won that uh, WPA World Nine Ball Championship and, uh, in Alicante, Spain, and uh, and then uh, right after that, 
Derby City. I won the uh, one pocket and uh, and uh, and then uh, the beginning of '99, I won on the bank. So it was kind of amazing because uh, I was kind of lucky that I was still doing good in the tournaments because uh, my business is a business that takes uh, a lot of inventory and, uh, and uh, so. Uh, 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 I was able to put most of, uh, of the money back in the inventory. That's one of the worst parts of my business uh, is uh, you have to have lots of inventory. And then I knew that uh, I knew eventually I'd have to handle other products as soon as I could afford to. And then I naturally started out with a small brochure, and then uh, and then it took me about four years to put out my first catalog and. And uh, where I had a lot of billiard accessories, and uh, and then Billiard Claw uh, became a distributor of Billiard Claw, and uh, and so uh, and then uh, ended up with almost everything: balls and cloth and accessories and cases and cues. So so ended up being close. Ended up being kind of a place where you could kind of a one-stop shop. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, cause I think you, you you do everything, don't you? I mean, it's not just cues anymore. It's you do you do everything. So that's uh, and you and you are you strictly you strictly wholesale, right? Or do you do yeah. retail as well? Well, I have a small retail store in my hometown uh, uh, where uh, I. I uh, that I've had for many, many years were sell pool tables and uh uh and then uh, uh I run my uh wholesale out of the same uh, building and, and uh so that's worked out uh, pretty good and uh we even have uh uh we even do service work within about an hour of Owensboro where we cover tables and and uh and uh so uh do a little bit of everything, but the uh, bulk of my business, eighty uh, percent of it, definitely is wholesale. Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad it's uh, I'm glad it's going well for you, and you know maybe some of these younger players will uh, maybe take notice a little bit of making the right decision because you can't play forever, and having something to to fall back on. So. Uh, yeah, well, I I was lucky. I was in a position where a couple, you know, uh, the owner of Falcon Cues and then Peter Vitale, I was lucky to be in that position where I had met a lot of their dealers over the years doing exhibitions. So I, I was kind of fortunate. I got a lot of help along the way. Right. Yeah, this is, this is a little bit of smarts, a little bit of money, and a little bit of luck involved in a lot of things. Well, I'm gonna. Yeah, what's the What's the old saying about playing pool? The uh, the uh, more the more you practice, the the luckier you get. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. Well, I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to let you go. Um, I appreciate you uh, spending time with us. I, well, let, let me ask you a question though. Um, it was going going back to the Moscone Cup. If you, were to, if you had to bet, who would you pick this year? 
Well, since I'm from the USA, I got to pick the USA. <laughs> go USA. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I didn't really expect you to say anything else, but uh, it's uh, it's going to be a, a tough job, and uh, you know, maybe with, who knows down the road they might have a scene with Moscone Cup, and you'd be I think. Well, uh, I certainly have enjoyed that event. I think it's certainly one of the greatest events in pool, and uh, and uh, and I sure uh, wish uh, uh, Mark Wilson and the team. Uh, all the best of luck when they go to England uh, this year, and uh, hope they bring back that uh, Moscone Cup at the right time. No kidding. How long has it been? How long has it been now? Is it four years? Two thousand nine. Uh, yeah, we lost. Uh, let's see, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Yeah, I lost four years in a row. Is that right? No, no. Let's see. 10, 11, 12, yeah, yeah, I lost uh, four out of the last five years, I guess. Last time the team won was 2009. Wow. So, yeah, well, it is about time. Uh, things have been shook up a little bit, so we'll see We'll see how it works. Um, th- again, Nick, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it, and uh, good luck with your business. Uh, hope it continues to flourish. And uh, thanks for your input on the Moscone Cup. Okay. Thank you, Mark. No problem. And that's it for this week's edition of the Legends and Champions Report with myself, Mark Kentrell, brought to you by Neil's Garage Cabinets of Mesa, Arizona. And uh, that was Nick Varner, eight-time world champion, Hall of Famer. Until next week, we'll see you later. <laughs>